The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit with a mission to connect people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River Basin through Indigenous voices. Find out more at confluenceproject.org. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. In May of 2020, people from across the United States, and the world for that matter, took to the streets to protest the death of George Floyd, a Black man who died in police custody in Minnesota. Floyd's death and the subsequent protests rekindled decades-long anger and frustration over the treatment of people of color, These events also led many people to re-examine their own lives and the racism in their communities. Here at Confluence, we were reminded of a similar reckoning closer to home. Ed Edmo and Lonnie Roberts grew up in the 1950s in The Dalles, Oregon. Ed is native and Lonnie is white. As adults, they rediscovered their shared history and started a years-long conversation about the racial dynamics at play during their childhood. In 2007, Lonnie and Ed co-wrote the essay Parallel Lives, which, through prose and poetry, explores their disparate experiences as children. In June of 2020, they recorded their essay for Confluence. Now, because of COVID, we chose to have them be outdoors at a safe distance, so you'll hear some wind and paper shuffling and even an airplane or two. And now, Parallel Lives. We live together, yet apart. We are estranged. I grew up in a house built by my great-great-grandfather in 1868. The land upon which the house and the cherry orchard were located was deeded as a homestead. This acreage, like much of the North American continent, was considered empty and unused by the immigrating Europeans. I grew up with just this conception, but learned later that the local native peoples had ceded millions of acres in the mid-Columbia area in an 1851 treaty. In addition to the cherry orchard, the Roberts family also homesteaded a wheat and cattle ranch running alongside the Deschutes River, lost to the family in the Great Depression. My great-grandfather served in the Oregon legislature in the 1920s, and the room at the back of the Congregational Church Sanctuary, open for overflow crowds on Christmas and Easter, is dedicated to him as well. I was the fourth generation of my father's family to graduate from the Dallas High School. My roots are deep in the mid-Columbia region. I was born on the Duck Valley Indian Reservation in Hawaii, Nevada in 1946. My grandparents lived at Slalo Fishing Village, located at the falls for about 15,000 years. Slalo was the central seasonal gathering site for tribal people throughout the Northwest, walking in from what's now southeastern Idaho, Spokane area, Burns, Washington, Oregon coast, to fish, trade, and socialize. We traded dantillium shells, buffalo products, wokas, roots, and stories. My grandma was Nurse Purse, grandfather of Yakima. This mom wrote to grandma and they We'd planned that we would visit. It's been a long, long visit. I moved to the river when I was six months old. My home is the river. The river was a welcome playmate, which never had to be called in for supper. Sound of river is soothing to my ears like a lullaby. River was always my friend. 
We've been on the river a long, long, long time, fishing, digging roots, hunting along Enchuana, the big river, as we call the Columbia River. There were legends about white people coming. Me youth at Slalom, my family would talk around the dinner table on the warm, welcome wood stove. When around, the food went to the missioner's house to eat. House was built out of discarded railroad ties. My father salvaged from the Union Pacific Railroad, where he worked on a section gang. I remember being three-year-old straw bosses. My brother Frenchy called me. I believe my straw boss authority fired my brother Frenchy a few times. I learned to read by a coal oil lamp before I started first grade in the Downs. My mom would give me classic comic books, broke my teeth on classics that described Slala Falls, Slala Fishermen. You made your nets and tethered the knots, seeing that they held. Little did you know what was to hold you after the sound of water falling over what used to be. Without a doubt, the single most tragic and traumatic wrong done to the Mid-Columbia River and to the peoples who lived there was the flooding of Soil Falls. Although both of us still grieve this tragic loss, the direct impact and experiences were radically different then and still today. When the government man came, it seemed like he was always constipated all the time. He never smiled. It seemed like there weren't any children to greet him at the end of the day with a happy daddy, daddy, as he came home from work. Same attitude of the town people. They threw rocks at us with their eyes. That attitude of racism I don't like. My dad, Edward Edmund Sr., saw the Marlin Dallas Dam at the Chamber of Commerce downtown. He tried to warn the Indians that slalom. They scoffed at him, called him old Chinaman because he had his hair short, didn't wear hair long braids. When the workers began leveling the land for the Railroad Pacific right-of-way, elders remembered when they built Bonneville Dam, they removed and not paid anything. We will stand on our treaty rights, elders said. My father organized Slough Indian Community Club to get monies for our fisheries and homes. I remember one of the meetings were held in people's houses. Henry Thompson, Chief Tommy Thompson's son, told the government man, you should give us $50 for every board in a drying shed. This is the way we make our living. The uh, government man got angry. You'll accept our fair offer if not. I'll go to Judge Weber, condemn your land. You won't see a red cent. White man lived at Moody. He owned a store and gas station. He had that for a high price. And not when the bulldozer would come, tear down his house and business. I remember the white man standing there crying in the red, red bandana. Government man made an example out of him. They would have to accept our fair offer. There were a time when there were no hearings on environmental impact, cultural impact, or anything like that. And the Red Scare, and the newest government, needed electricity to make aluminums to build ICBM missiles to point out the Russians. It was done in the name of progress. And no one stuck up for an ending except for the Democratic Party from Wasco County. The local chapter darted the American Revolution. 
told the government man that we wanted to settle down the doubts to show the white people what they did to us. The government said, no, we couldn't do that. Didn't know a lot of being speculated for development for hotels and gas stations. When the agreements were that the park we should build curio shop to sell a beadwork to food and for tourists to stop in, what happened? When I was a girl, about 10 years old, my mom and dad took me to see Celilo Falls. I remember it well because the mood was serious and somber, almost spiritual, very much like it feels at a funeral. My parents explicitly told me that they wanted me to see Celilo Falls because it would never exist again. That impressed me. How could something as huge and powerful and magnificent as Celilo Falls cease to exist? The water roared, the falls were taller than any building I'd ever seen, and the Indian fishermen dangled dangerously over the water, dip-netting salmon from the river. My dad explained that the Dalles Dam was near completion, and when it stopped the flow of the mighty Columbia River, the backwater would flood the falls out of existence. This became an actuality in 1957. I have mourned the loss of Celilo Falls my whole life. When I understood what had happened, I used to scare my parents by wishing that someone would blow up the Dalles Dam. I doubt I am the only person who imagined such a thing. I also doubt that the Dalles Dam could be built today in the same location since an environmental impact statement would be required and I hope the utter destruction of such a magnificent natural wonder and ancient fishing village would be unthinkable. The cost has been incalculable both to the natural environment and to the lives of the original peoples who lived there. Not only was a 15,000-year-old fishing village destroyed, but the salmon and the steelhead runs have greatly diminished to the extent that the federal government has proposed counting hatchery salmon in species populations. The dynamic flow of living river has ceased, and in its place is a series of man-made lakes behind the several hydroelectric dams constructed to provide cheap electricity. It seems completely wrong, a mistake, to call the Columbia a river anymore. It was springtime day. My dad took me out of Wishram Elementary to watch the flooding of the Slava Falls. It was like a bad dream. Something so big, so wonderful, was flooded. I'd watched my grandpa fish, my uncle fish. I do believe I'd grow up to be a fisherman. My role models were taken away by the flooding of the falls. Nowadays, I tell legends from the river, tell stories about Salala Falls. I go fishing for an envelope and check in it, take to Fred Myers and get groceries. I'm a fisherman in a different way. The natatorium, cool, clear water on a hot day. It is really hot in the Dalles in the summertime. The hottest I can remember was 116 degrees, and there are nights when it does not cool down below the 80s. Relief was available, though. Kids, some kids, could go swimming at the natatorium, more commonly called the Nat. It is a city-owned and operated swimming pool just west of the downtown area. Like lots of kids, my siblings and I walk there nearly every day in the summer. 
As a child, I did not notice that the Indian kids weren't swimming with us, even on the hottest days. As is all too often the case, people of ethnic minorities are invisible to the dominant culture, and my childhood was no exception. With shame as an adult, I recall that it simply did not occur to me to even notice that kids meant white kids, and no adult in my life pointed out this fact. I sometimes think I can remember Indian kids pressed up against the chain-link fence surrounding the pool, looking in at us splashing around for hours in the cool water. I don't know whether this is an, actually a memory or the result of the guilt I feel. For some reason, a five-year-old can't understand us Indians were not allowed into the big swimming pool, the deep greenish-blue water and high diving boards. If you wanted to get wet, you better go to the toddler's waiting pool even grown men and women. I guess the white people believe that live the white would rub off big spirit some of their white privilege. One time the Boys and Girls Club had a swim day. My brother was a member. We were to go to the swimming pool on a Saturday morning. On Friday night, the tension in the kitchen oozed like a coral lamp. Mom and Dad talked in hushed voices. I could see the seriousness in Mom's face. She was straining to get her words out. That just with the forefinger extended like pounding nails. I saw him hammer a lot of nails when I was a kid. When we arrived at the swimming pool, we joined a long line of the members of the pal club. And the desk was a teenage white boy, red-faced mad. Mr. Warren, the flamboyant leader, had a receipt over his top hat, which he wore on special occasions. Finally, a phone call was made to the manager of the pool. Looking back at my brother and me, Mr. Warren said that the Boys and Girls Club was open to needed children. While I had mom and dad, grandma lived on the hill with a warm milk and wood stove. I didn't think I was needy. Tempted ran out of food, so went to the missionary's house to eat. Mr. Warren asked me and my brother last time we took a bath. This morning, sir. He talked in hushed tone. After a long time, he handed the phone to the hot-faced boy. He slammed the receiver down. There were a lot of cussing. My brother and I went to get our baskets for the clothes. Dirty Indians, one of the boys cursed at us by the desk. Remember how glad I was when I peeled off my clothes, put on my new bathing suit. Mom got me at the J.C. Penny store. Then we took a shower and didn't mind the cold water and marched out tramping to the big pool water. I went down to the shallow end, looked at the wide expanse of greenish blue water, felt like I could walk on water. While this worked pretty good, till one time Mom was late picking me up. I was standing in the shade by the dressing room. White footballs came taunting me. Go back, you don't belong here, dirty savage. Stay in your village, war hoop. We don't want you around, your dirty little Indian. They've been pushing me, grabbing my towel, threw it on the ground, began hitting me. I covered myself, swung haymakers at them. Come haymakers connected, which added to the hostility. When the boy grabbed my arm, pulled around my back, added pressure, I cried out in pain. Just then, Mom drove up with her car horn blaring. Bob was sobbing, began running. It tried to run after them. But mom held me, never mind. They got small hearts to pick on you. Then I wish I had the power to walk on water.
Saturday matinees at the Granada Theater. Another form of entertainment when we were kids was the Granada Theater. The building still exists at the corner of 2nd and Washington Street in the Dells. In the 1950s, the Saturday matinee drew lots of kids. If my memory serves me well, most of the movies were westerns, like Roy Rogers, The Lone Ranger and Tommel, Hopalong Cassidy, and others, replete with cowboys and Indian storylines. It was from these movies that we kids drew our inspiration as we played cowboys and Indians in the neighborhood. In retrospect, I can recall that no one wanted to be the Indians. The littlest kids had to be the Indians because the cowboys were always supposed to win. This kind of play was thought of as normal and harmless, but today, as an ethicist who studied how we human beings organize ourselves to harm some of us for the benefits of the others of us, I cannot help but think about how these games and the movies we watched affected our perceptions of the native people in our midst. How could it not have led us to view them as other than us in an irredeemable way? The old movie house in the Dallas was a Granada movie theater. We always sat in the balcony. I was really young. I just thought that mom and dad picked those seats because they were the bestest seats in the house. I looked around, saw the Navajos, worked on the railroad and Japanese who grew crops in Dallasport. One time my older brother, Frenchie and me, were sitting on the main floor. Usher growled at us. Indian boys have to go up to nigger heaven and heaven to sit. My brother Frenchie pointed at the army uniform. Since the uniform, I fought for the country sit where I want to. Usher's modern Adam Rapp would jump up and down his neck a couple of times. Usher spun on his heels, went back toward the back. Magic came down, large man. I would jingle the chain in his pocket to convince himself of his importance. Indian have said nigger heaven and heaven, the manager said, jingling, changed his pocket. My brother said, see this uniform, I fought for the country, I can sit in where I want. My brother French, he shouted at the manager. I'm going to call the cops, the manager threatened. Go to call the cops. The cop has a uniform on, I got a uniform on. Maybe we'll talk man to man, French said. The manager never called the cops. Ever since an Indian sat on the main floor of the Granada Movie Theater. The Dallas High School Indians. Sports teams' uses of Native Americans as mascots is under consideration all over the United States and a lesson I used in my ethics classes. I had to tell my students, with chagrin, that my own high school was the Dallas High School Indians, and worse, the mascot image was Chief Wahoo, a grinning cartoon caricature of an Indian complete with a feather. The Portland, Oregonian newspaper stopped using such names in the early 1990s but my high school and others in the state of Oregon continued to use the native names for their teams for a long time. In May 2005, the Enterprise High School student body voted to quit using the Savages as their mascot, and the school board supported this change. In the spring of 2004, the school board in the Dalles was busy combining two school districts. In 1963, the Chenoweth School District had opened its own high school, Watanka, and we students who had gone to school together for years were to split into two groups. 
the Watonka Eagles and the Dalles Indians. In the recent process of rejoining the two school districts, the name of the new high school and its mascot became heated topics of debates. I decided I had to enter this discussion, so I wrote to the school board chair regarding my wish to have the high school stop using the name Indians and especially to stop using Chief Wahoo as the logo. I enclosed articles my students read in critically analyzing this debate and asked that he share my concerns and the reading material with the rest of the school board. The controversy raged for months with petitions both for and against the Indians, polls of students in both high schools, public testimony from interested townspeople, and apparently a great deal of communication with individual board members, one of whom said he'd received more than 80 emails. The central argument of those who wanted the school district to retain the Dallas School High School Indians was to preserve a proud history. I am a fourth generation graduate of the Dallas High School, and it was my expressed view that there was nothing whatsoever in the historical records encompassing the Indians in the community, which was worthy of pride or preservation. To the contrary, the historical past was shameful. Several different decisions about names and mascots were made and rescinded. Only two of the board members ended up agreeing with the view that I and others held. In the end, on June 23, 2004, the school board voted to name the high school the Dallas Watonka Union High School, and they adopted Eagle Indian as their mascot. My brother and I were mascots in the Dallas High School Indian basketball team. I'm not sure what went with the arrangement for it to be mascots. I know that I speculated that it was the way my father and mother were trying to gain some acceptance of the white community in the Dallas. What I did was to wear my war bonnet as they came out the court give the basketball and shoot the basket in the belief that if I made the basket, the team would win that night. I got to go to Astoria when I was a mascot. I got to stay in a hotel, treated like a white boy. I remember eating at a cafe, not being asked to leave because I was Indian. You know that people do strange things for strange reasons, looking back in my mascot days. The damn had flooded us out. We moved to Washington, Washington, across where Snell Village used to be. Basketball team was the Indians also. I was a mascot there too. I was chosen to go to Boy State, Washington in 1963-64, quite an honor. When we got to the campus, first white boy made me a mascot. And I remember someone said, sit cross-legged on the table. I learned the government passed laws. I didn't choose to participate, sit like an Indian was mentioned, quite a bit of laughter from the rich white boys. Racism. Children are defenseless in terms of the social messages they receive from family, friends, and entertainment. I never noticed that kids meant mostly white kids when it came to the swimming pool or the theater. Even though I was raised to not judge others by the color of their skin, my, my parents forbade in no uncertain terms the use of racist words, 
I grew up smack dab in the middle of toxic, cruel racism directed toward the Indians with whom I lived. And I didn't know. How is this possible? In my classes, if I describe a town in which people from an ethnic minority could not sit on the main floor of the theater or swim in the swimming pool, and the signs and stars said, no dogs, no coloreds, they do not hesitate to name Jim Crow South. When I tell them this was my hometown, the Dells, Oregon, when I was a kid, they're shocked. I remember seeing signs in the windows, most of the stars in the Dells, no dog engines allowed. I couldn't understand it. I was raised in a good Christian home, thought that love would overcome all. When I went to town, white people would throw rocks at us with their eyes. Can't see the rocks, but hurts. The bruises last a long time. That's what it seemed like to me. I went to town. Felt like I didn't belong. I wasn't good enough. I remember being buying candy bars in the alleyway to the door because I wasn't allowed to go into the stores. Toward the end of my dad's life, after I'd been teaching about the dynamics of racism for several years, I tried to very gently pry some information from him about his awareness of the racism in our hometown. I asked about who my ancestors had hired to work for them, how they were treated, and other leading kinds of questions. My dad sincerely and completely maintained the worldview that the Indians in the Dalles were not subject to racism. There's the richest presidents of Indians in a small town. The fish village where I grew up. In the stories, the Dallas, Oregon had signs displaying when no doubt Indians allowed. These were signed most stores, not just a few stores. Indians were now to eat at one cafe on the east side of town where the windows and prostitutes bootleggers hung out. Remember one time, it was early Sunday warm afternoon, the clouds seemed to be dropped by God on the twilight scene. I was six years old. Mom and I were sitting in front of Johnny's Cafe in the car. That's what she, we did in those days, watching people, Mom called it. it was, at that time, Mom instructed me what story I could go into by myself. Which I could go into with an adult. She pointed with her lips across the street to the dress store. She said, that's upper crust store. Don't even go in there. Mom used upper crust, meaning the rich white people in town. When mom wanted her hair done, she couldn't, had to go to the home of the beautician, went allowed into the beauty shop. I remember that when an Indian went to a store, they had to wait to be waited on. A white person walked in, they couldn't wait on us, right on the white person. They had to wait a long time, I remember that. We took a shirt, we couldn't put it on, we had to look at it and buy it, hope it would fit. possible I did not notice any of these wrongs. Why didn't my parents tell me about the injustices toward the Indians right there in our town and warn me not to ever treat another person like that? They told me explicitly to be fair and kind to African Americans, at that time Negroes, and Mexicans. Why is it that the wrongs most present in our everyday lives are the very ones most difficult to see? Is it because they are so ever-present everywhere that they become like the air we breathe, invisible? Is it because I'm European-American, white, so that my privileged place in my Oregon hometown meant I didn't have to notice that those of us who do not receive the cruelty of racism, 
Even those of us who are the perpetrators are oblivious. I can't go home to a small-minded society where I couldn't find a girlfriend. Remember, like this white girl, I believe she liked me. I went up to her house. Inside, where the mother looked out the window, she said that she couldn't be with together because I was one of those Indians in the village. I remember walking, crying all the way from her house to downtown, just walking, crying, feeling less than. I can't go home over to where my house used to stand. Where my house used to stand, there's a freeway. A special thanks to Ed and Lonnie for sharing their essay, Parallel Lives. After we shared their story online, they joined us to talk more about their essay and the lessons they've learned about racial injustice. You can find that, along with other episodes of the Confluence podcast, in our podcast feed. And speaking of the podcast, in early 2021, we'll be launching the next season of the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. Episodes will explore what does it mean to be an American? caring for the ecosystems that support orca and salmon, and an important conversation with writer Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass. Those episodes and more in the next season of the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. That's you. Join us today.